With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined today by a special guest. Stu is still on vacation in Europe. Um, we'll hear from him probably next week, hopefully. Um, but we wanted to welcome Matt Fortuna back to The Audible. Matt has been, uh, Matt and I worked together at ESPN.com way back when, and then I reunited with him when I got to The Athletic. Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I, I wonder what Stu's up to in Europe because uh, Kevin Warren was in London when the Big Ten decided to expand. So I'm always – you're literally not safe from this news no matter where you go on, uh, um, in this world anymore. It's been absolutely crazy. No, always crazy. By the way, is that Ed Oliver in the background of your, over your shoulder? It, it is. It is. I, uh, that's my tribute to our late great friend Ed Ashoff who um, did the TV special that unveiled that Ed Oliver – was a uh, an avid horse rider, and and um, I think the FWAA via Houston had sent out a bunch of those tests for Heisman campaigns, and um, it's always been near and dear to my heart. Thanks to our our dear friend Ed. So uh, I'm uh, always thinking of him anytime I'm doing anything college football media related. Yeah, we miss him. Still can't believe it. Um, so one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on today, we have a story you and I worked on with, with Jason Jenks for the last, I don't know, two months or so, uh, about the Wakey league scandal. It just went up on the site today. Um, you covered wake forest when you were at ESPN.com when you were doing a lot of ACC stuff. So let's walk back and think it's been a while. Obviously since 2016, I mean, in context, what was the wildest part of the story in your eyes? Uh, Bruce, I think it was probably just how widespread it was. Like, it, it was a big story in real time, and it kind of just got forgotten about over the years as Wake Forest kept winning more. Um, but but even then, when, when the story broke, there were three schools that were named. It was Army, it was Virginia Tech, uh, and it was Louisville, which is uh, where the breach was initially discovered uh, during that 2016 game. And it was kind of forgotten about. And I think, you know, one thing that, that was made clear to, to me, you and Jason throughout all the calls we made was, you know, this was really widespread, like, like wake with the benefit of hindsight is operating under the assumption that most, if not all of their opponents either had some kind of Intel or at least were offered some kind of Intel by Tommy Elrod throughout that three year stretch. And that's just, when you put it in that context and when you remind yourself that, hey, this is by no means a, a football power by the traditional sense, and they were rebuilding with a new coaching regime, um, it was already going to be an uphill climb for for, Wake Forest, for Dave Clawson to get Wake Forest back on the map. Um, knowing what he had to put up with now those first three years um, and knowing what it did to, to cheapen the careers of, of the kids who were playing then is really mind-boggling. 
You mentioned uh, the name Tommy Elrod. For people who don't remember or people who haven't read our story yet, uh, Tommy Elrod was a former backup quarterback at Wake Forest and then stayed on and spent over a decade on the staff, but was not retained when Dave Clawson came over from Bowling Green. And uh, Warren Ruggiero is his offensive coordinator, really, you know, was going to handle that. But, you know, it's kind of mind blowing as somebody who, who had known Tommy Elrod a little bit um, from being around the ACC. It was just kind of like, holy cow. And as we did our reporting, there was there was, you know, the reactions were all over the map. I, I'll be honest. I talked to some staffers who were like, I didn't even know who he was, you know, because they were new to it. And then there was other people who you talked to who either were part of the program or, you know, one of the people I talked to had played for basically played for Wake when he was there and just were like, he was the last guy you would suspect. I think that was the added kind of wrinkle. Um, what was kind of eye opening for you in the reporting process of this story? Yeah, I remember when it happened, um, I heard from some people in, in real time in 2016 who uh, either worked at Wake or who had worked at Wake in the past, and they were mind-blown. They thought, you know, kind of like you said, this guy was Mr. Wake Forest. He was a double deke. He played there. He coached there. Jim Grove loved him. He's the last guy you would have ever suspected to do something like this. Um, I felt like, and I'm curious if you felt the same way, I felt like with each new call we made throughout this process – over the last couple of months and each new revelation we made in some ways it just became more and more surreal and mind, mind boggling. I think you were the one who had uh, uncovered for me and Jason that, you know, his father's was a high up Disney executive, Tommy Elrod's father, who was credited with coining the, the Super Bowl phrase. I'm going to Disney world. Like, like <laughs> putting that together with, um, you know, the, the guy who, who committed maybe the most significant, protocol breach in the history of college football is pretty crazy to, to think about. Like it just gets crazier and crazier. I mean, uh, I know there are a lot of Ted Lasso fans um, who, who listen to college football podcasts. Like it's a little bit like Nate. Um, you know, if you've watched that show, it's like, whoa, like didn't see that one coming. That was the guy everyone could count on who ended up um, betraying his, his boss and betraying everyone in, in his organization. So um the, the fact that it was as widespread as, as Wake believes it was and, and the fact that it came from a guy who, look, I mean, uh, we didn't get into this, this story. There's a very, you know, sad go college game day Tom Rinaldi piece from, I think, 2012 uh, on the Elrods and their personal situation and some of the stuff they had to go through. And, again, this predates the Dave Clawson era. This predates the, the Wake E-League scandal. But uh, the, the more and more you find out about this guy and his past – uh, the less and less it adds up in some ways, right? Like, it, it's just like, the, how's, how do you put two and two together? How did this guy who so many people have such glowing things to say about both personally and professionally commit such a, a terrible act? And uh, again, that's, that, that's part of what makes this story so fascinating from a, a reporter standpoint, because it's just like one thing after another. Yeah. The, and the details we're getting from, from former players and staffers as they looked back, um, was still kind of shocking. I would say use the word surreal, just that like, wow, this actually happened to the degree it happened, you know, cause you hear stories of somebody got a play sheet or wherever and different things. People are, people had somebody spied on a practice, you know, the, the level of detail that we got in this story for people who haven't read it yet about in the game, the Louisville game in particular, this is Lamar Jackson's Louisville team where they were a very good team anyway. Um, and this was the week where, 
you know, Warren Ruggiero was going to bust out some plays that he'd never run. And they had trick plays and a lot of stuff. And Louisville was waiting for all of it. And to see that, to hear it, and then to look back and watch some of the, some of the video of it, you're like, Oh my God. Um, the, you know, one of the comments that, that stayed with me from somebody I had interviewed for this was just like, this was such a crazy scandal that if it wasn't Wake Forest in Louisville, and this person said if it was Clemson or if it was Miami or Florida State, you know, it was almost sort of shut down the sport just because it was so wild. I mean, for, for me in context, it's hard to put anything that quite compares to this. I'm not saying it was – to me, it's it's – the wildest story I can think of in like the last 20 years relating to on-field football. But it, you know, the, the part that I couldn't get my head around, I think is just like you said, we know of a few teams that it happened for, you know, having made some conversations, we both know Dave Clawson. I think it's in the, not in the back of his mind, probably that there were others that, you know, you look back and things go, Ooh, this didn't have, like you said, a lot of people had the, uh, you know, probably had the Intel on them. I mean, in some ways, it's like every message board hysteria rumor come to life, right? Like, we all joke about, like, the gruff and tough football coach who doesn't talk to anybody and doesn't trust anybody and, and treats his game plans like they're war secrets. And in this case, like, like the worst thing that could have possibly happened in that regard happened. And, and you know, people at Wake talk to us about how it's changed the way they operate, how they're more closed off than they intended to be, and and how they, they can't let visiting coaches into practice the way other coaches do as frequently. And, you know, I, it, it's funny because, like, as a media guy, and you mentioned, you know, we, we've all talked to Dave Clawson and people around that program pretty frequently. I, I, I've still felt them to be more accommodating than most programs as far as access and as far as taking our phone calls and, and answering questions we have. But um, it, it, it's pretty remarkable what what happened in that regard. I mean, and, you know, I mean, I don't know if it says the first part, Tommy Allred's still living in Winston-Salem. Like, that's, that's bananas. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine this happening in Alabama and this guy living in Tuscaloosa still, like, with the, that crazy fan base? Like, that's that's a whole other element where I'm just like, wait, what? Um, like, there's a better chance than not that, like, some of these guys have seen him in town, you know? And, and how awkward must, and uncomfortable must that be for both sides? So um, I, 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 I'm glad we did this story because it was one of those things where, again, in real time, my mind was blown. Um, I couldn't believe it was happening. And then I was kind of equally surprised by how little people seem to remember or, or care about it without prompting. And I, I hope this story shed a light on, you know, how significant it was and, and the, the fallout from it, if you will, which, you know, I think one of the reasons people forget about it, one, it's Wake Forest. It's the smallest power five school in the country. Um, two, Wake Forest has, has won a lot of football games since then. And again, there are a lot of inherent disadvantages at Wake Forest in the ACC. I mean, when Dave Clawson got there, Florida State was coming off the national title. They went undefeated in 2014 and Clemson was, was in the infancy stages of their run for for two national titles and I believe six straight ACC titles. So um, they were really bad and they were playing really good teams. And we didn't know it at the time, but they were also playing with one arm tie behind their back. And fast forward eight, nine years later, they finished number 15 in the country last year. They won 11 games. They made the ACC title game. They bring virtually everybody back this year and have a chance, a legitimate chance, I think, to win the ACC this year. And uh, that's unique and pretty impressive on its own, given that it's Wake Forest. 
when you look at the fact that they had to start basically with a three-year hole, um, it's even more impressive. And I hope you know the common fan can, can come to appreciate uh, the significance of everything that went on there. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, I, I would make this case, too, that in a lot of ways, and it's and Clawson won, has won wherever he'd been, but the ironic part of this scandal, we get into this a little bit in the story, a little bit, is that what happened there with Tommy Elrod and being so, you know, again, like now Allison, and, and you have this, this program that credit to Warren Ruggiero, he went back to the whiteboard and brainstormed this scheme that is so unique. And I would make the case that this gives them an identity Wake Forest has never had. People know what the slow mesh is. If you're a real football fan, you're like, okay, you, the slow mesh is Wake Forest. And, uh, Clawson had told me this, um, this stat and for, to take two steps back on this story. So I started getting very intrigued with Wake Forest and the slow mesh and it kind of tied to a, the, my, my little coaching foray and my son's peewee football team. So I had talked to Dave Clawson and we had talked really for that story back in early May. And, but one of the things he had said is, you know, they started doing that after this in the three years before. Uh, Ruggiero had come up with the slow mesh. They had averaged just 17 points a game. In the five seasons since, Demon Deacons are averaging 36 points a game, and I think they're the only ACC school, he had said, that has averaged at least 30 points a game in each of those five seasons, which is remarkable that this program has done what it has done, especially in the hole it was in. I mean, you know, it, it was interesting is if – uh, maybe they had another year of that. They probably don't get, they're probably fired. You know, right. it's just, it's crazy how it turned when it turned and, and, and in a lot of ways why it turned. And now, as he said, you know, as he told me, it's like, we don't share, you know, before Wakey leaks, I was probably as open to any coach in the country. And now they're not letting anybody in. And he, you know, I think he's conflicted a little bit about that because that goes against his nature, but he saw how it affected their players. And, I mean, it's a fascinating dynamic there because, you know, you know how coaches like to are very uh, paranoid to begin with, but they at least let some access or you have like assistance go somewhere or whatever. And this is still one thing that is uniquely Wake Forest. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder like in a hypothetical, I guess not that hypothetical role because they should be pretty good this year. Like, um, you know, when you get to a, a New Year's Six Bowl or a playoff, one of those big games, there's so much um, open practice time for media and for like the Kirk Herbstreets and Chris Fowlers of the world to come and, and hang out at practice. I, I wonder what the dynamics of that could be like if Wake makes one of those big games this year, just because again, they've had a security breach unlike any, I think we've ever seen um, probably in college football history. The, the other part of this, and you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, if they had one more losing season, they might not have survived. I mean, John Wolford's still in the NFL right now with the Los Angeles Rams. John Wolford was, 
uh, a true freshman starter in 2014, Dave Clawson's first year quarterback, who, by the way, was initially committed to East Carolina and was flipped to Wake Forest by none other than Tommy Elrod, who uh, was part of the holdover staff while Dave Clawson's old staff at Bowling Green finished up there for their bowl game against Pitt that year. I mean, just talk about another uh, one more crazy element to this story that, that already has plenty of it. Um, but, but, you know, that was a very young, not very good offense line at the time going up against, you know, the Florida States and Clemson's of the world that were just loaded with first round picks on their defensive lines. And John Wolford, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Those first three years, I think he got sacked more than 80 times total. Like you talk about the physical toll and physical compromise that this guy took uh, to say nothing of the competitive compromise that, that happened then. I mean, it's really mind boggling. I mean, I, I talked to a couple people throughout the reporting of this story who had known Tommy Elrott, you know, and, and were friends with him pre Wakey leaks. Um, and they all kind of theorized to me, yeah, you know, it's easy for, for us to take a step back, say, okay, this is a guy who was a wake lifer, who the new coach chose not to keep on his staff. He had revenge on the mind. That's like, like the human element of it, right? But like you think of revenge in a, a pretty like binary mono mono term, right? Like if I have a beef with you, Bruce, I'm going to do something to screw you and only you over. I'm not going to compromise the entire athletic operation or, or, or your family, right? Like like there there's a group of football players who signed on to scholarships at Wake Forest who played 2014 to 2016 who got their asses kicked and. It was already going to be uphill time for them if the playing field was level. But to find out that someone who's being paid by the program literally hand-delivered the playbook to the opposition. I mean, I, I, I don't know how I would feel still all these years later if I were a player of that team and I had to rehash this and I had to, to, to go back and relitigate it. And, and, you know, there are plenty of players quoted in this story talking about, boy, are we playing, you know, Dave Clawson's brother because this opposing defense coordinator seems to know all of our plays. Or um, I think it was Tyler Hayworth who said, like, I want to call a timeout when the defense, you know, called out our, our, our signals. But, you know, I, I thought I'd get benched because that's like, you know, that's not something, that's not my job. And I'm just lucky to be here right now as an ACC football player. There are just so many, like, personal human elements that just really wrench your heart, I think, when you think about what was lost throughout those three years for those players. Yeah, you even think like you're seeing a ghost. Like I had one of the assistant coaches uh, tell me being on the sideline, I think it was against the Virginia Tech game, where the receivers came back and said, we're saying they know the routes were running before we even the play snapped. And the coaches were like, I think in their head dismissive at that point. And then all of a sudden you look back and now in context, you're like, well, maybe they did know. And <laughs> You're right. I mean, to, to be so shorthanded, to feel like you got so sandbagged, um, it's really, it's just, it's a, it's just a crazy story. It really is. I mean, and it, it, it only feels more, I, know, I guess it only feels a little more surreal. Like as we got, it got into the story, I wasn't thinking in the context of wakey leaks to slow mesh necessarily, but just, as you said, I mean, last year was actually the first year Wake Forest had ever cracked the top 10. They finished 15th. They have almost everybody back. They also have one of their best receivers who didn't play last year. It is is it is back and healthy. Um, what what more do you think Clawson can do there? You know, I sat in his office in 2019. That was the Jamie Newman year where they started off something like seven and one or eight and one, and they kind of cratered at the end. And, um, 
lost three or four games down the stretch. But uh, I remember talking to him at that point, and their new facility had just gone up at that point. And you know, I don't know if you've been on campus recently, but you know that that went from a place that was pretty insignificant as far as facilities went to at least the top tier of the ACC right now. I mean, there, there's they've gotten serious about football, which is what happens when you've got money men and you've got a, a coach with a vision who proves on the field he's capable of winning. Uh, but but I remember asking Dave Clawson, like, oh, what's the goal? Like, you've got another winning season. You've got another ball coming up. Like, And he's just like – and this was 2019. So this was, you know, Clemson was the defending national champion who ended up going to the championship game again that year against LSU. And Dave, like, to his credit, um, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure, laughed at him from the outside looking in. And I'm not sure how serious I took him in this regard, but he's just like, we're, we're in a conference that has the best team in the country right now. Why would we settle? For me to, to to settle for anything less or to say we can't one day be Clemson or we can't one day win the ACC or go to the playoff, like, that would just be shortchanging um, everything we're doing here. I'm not going to do that. Why can't we do it? And they came damn close last year. Again, they, they, they were a half away from winning the ACC last year. And in more years than not, they, that'll get you a playoff bid. Um, I'll be very curious how they are this year because I think going into this year, I think the Atlantic's deeper than it's ever been. Um, and I think Wake Forest will have preseason hype and accolades in a way that's never had before. Again, due to the size of that school and its relative lack of football history, I think one of my favorite stats is every single year since Dave Clawson's been there, um, they have outperformed next next week's uh, ACC media days. They've outperformed their preseason ranking ACC media days every single year. And um, will that happen again this year? I, I don't know because I don't know where they're going to get picked to, to finish. I mean, let's face it, NC State has more NFL talent on the roster every year than Wake does, but Wake's beaten them four out of the last five years. Clemson, I don't know. Like We, we know what they're capable of. But we also saw them take a step back last year and lose a lot of key members of that coaching staff this year. So they're a bit of a wild card in that regard as well. So, I mean, look, I've doubted the guy in the past, and he's proven me and everyone else wrong. I wouldn't put it past Dave Clawson to, to take Wake Forest to the top of the ACC. Um, but, but he knows as well as anyone else. And I, I talked to him for our State of the Program story earlier this spring. Um, and I said, well, the goal is to win the ACC now, right, since you won the division last year. And he's like – it's like, I mean, yeah, we want to do it, but, like, that's not our starting point, especially if you watch our games. The margin for error is so thin for us to think, oh, well, we already did this. Now we just got to do that. It is would be shortchanging it. So, uh, again, due to the makeup of the roster, it's you can't just roll the balls out and just physically overwhelm and beat the teams you're playing every week. You've got to really lock in week after week after week, and they've proven capable of doing it in the past. But, again, there's going to be a target on their back like no other this year, and I, I think that's what makes this year's Wake Forest team so fascinating. All right, I think this is a good jumping-off point since we're talking ACC and postseason a little bit to get into all the potential conference realignment do dominoes. Uh, you and Pete Sampson do a great job helping cover Notre Dame for us. They are the biggest – the biggest domino out there with USC and UCLA now going to the Big Ten. I know you guys have written quite a bit about this. For people who have not read it yet, um, what do we need to know about Notre Dame? The timeline, you know, we know that there's probably some intrigue there. It doesn't sound like anything is imminent. H how do you read this? 
Yeah, I don't know if anything's imminent, Bruce. I mean, I was there um, Sunday night for, for, for a conference. I was in South Bend. I saw a number of different people from Notre Dame. And, you know, like, look, everyone's everyone's talking. Everyone's speculating. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen next. But I did not sense any – I did not get any sense of, like, tension or, or, or imminent change coming. That's not to say something could change down the road. But um, I, I think when you talk about Notre Dame and independence, for, for Notre Dame people that – and the outside world could laugh at this and this that's fine that's their opinion but Notre Dame really views independence as central to their identity as a university not just football and for, for them to relinquish that is going to take multiple uh, wide-ranging conversations at the highest levels of the university you know, this this isn't hiring a, a football coach which obviously is a big deal in its own right but Jack Swarbrick was able to do that with Marcus Freeman in three days last year while his boss, the school president, Father John Jenkins, was off in Rome and just had to give a stamp of approval via Zoom or whatever it was. Like, this is uh, serious university business in, in that regard. Now, uh, I will say, you know, you can do the math, I can do the math. Um, I, I think there's serious money being left on the table uh, in the next decade or so for Notre Dame if they don't strongly consider joining the Big Ten full time. Um, again, I don't think that's imminently going to happen, but I do think, you know, smart people at that university are more open to that idea, uh, than they've ever been. I mean, look, every time something happens in the college football world, right, Bruce, the first question any of us get asked is what's this mean for Notre Dame? Are they finally going to join a conference? And, you know, every time I say no, 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 even last year with the, the big 12 SEC moves, um, I thought, no, I, at that point in time, we thought we knew what the f- future football playoff format would look like, right? Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame athletic director, was one of the four men who helped orchestrate that deal that eventually fell through. Um, but but now, I mean, you know, our friend Brady Quinn has tweeted about this and some other pretty prominent people in Notre Dame circles have, have voiced their public opinions about this. I, I think the idea of joining a conference, particularly the Big Ten, was from a, a competitive and identity standpoint, there is always this fear of, well, they've already got a bunch of Midwest football powers there. We would just be marginalized and regionalized and not be able to expose our brand as much nationally had we joined a conference with a lot of like-minded football institutions like ourselves. Now, I mean, Bruce, our idea of a conference and of the Big Ten Conference today is a lot different than it was two weeks ago, right? Like, it is not a Midwest conference anymore. It's a national conference that literally stretches from coast to coast. So I think from a competitive standpoint and from the ability to spread your brand nationwide, I don't think you'd be sacrificing any of that if you're Notre Dame and you join the Big Ten full-time for football. And when you look at the financials, and again, look, their NBC deals up for renewal, I think, in 2025. I could be off off the top of my head by a year or two there, or a year either way there. But, um, you know, they're only making 15 to 20 million a year off that NBC deal. They're making seven to 10 a year through the ACC off their Olympic sports. Like, uh, you know, they're, they're not poor, but, you know, we saw the full ACC payout from the tax returns for 2020 a couple months ago for, from the, the COVID year when Notre Dame was a full football member. I think it was in the $35 million range. Again, not nothing. But when you project that out over the next 14 years, which is the length of this current ACC TV deal, and you project that out against what the Big Ten will be making with this new deal, which is probably north of $100 million per school, and you do the math over the next decade, that's upwards of a billion dollars in media rights revenue you're leaving on the table. And at some point, you know that that's not, oh, we're, we're, we're good with sacrificing a few dollars here to keep our identity. That's 
that's uh, a crisis mode as far as how do you possibly keep up with the schools that are making that much more money than you. So I, I think it's going to be a number of long conversations, but I definitely think they're, they're more receptive to those conversations at Notre Dame right now than they've ever been in the past. Yeah, when you talk about the, the, the dollar figures, can they afford not to do it? Be, to stand right. on the uniqueness for the brand if you're all of a sudden you're going to, I don't want to say they get marginalized, but that is such a, and obviously Notre Dame has a ton of cash and they're not UCLA in terms of in, in massive mm-hmm. debt over the last few years, but can they afford not to do this over the long haul? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to, right? I think at some point, you know, there'll be enough public and private messaging there. There'll be enough uh, you know, kind of indisputable math, if you will, behind the scenes that will probably you know, convert the, the, the true believers, if you will, uh, the old heads who uh, can never dream or imagine of a world where Notre Dame's playing football in a conference full time. I, I just think logic wins out at the end of the day. And again, I don't think that's going to happen overnight. Um, the, the other thread to this, uh, I think, which is what makes us such a big deal nationally is I'm not sure anything happens realignment until from here on out until Notre Dame makes its move. Now I've been wrong about realignment in the past, so don't hold me to that. But I mean, the biggest remaining brands outside of Oregon and Washington that are not in the big 10 SEC are in the ACC. And those ACC schools right now are really tied in financially towards staying in that league close to the end of that current TV deal, which goes through 2036. I mean, to break that grant of rights is real money, like in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think if there was a viable legal path to doing that, we would have seen one or multiple schools in that league try it by now, and they have it. Now, I do think, talking to some people in the ACC, um, if Notre Dame were to to leave, because Notre Dame would would not pay as harsh of a financial penalty since they're not tied uh, with their football rights to the ACC, if Notre Dame were to leave the ACC and join the big time full-time for football, um, then I think you could start see, seeing some creative accounting. You could start seeing some some wiring going on with some ACC schools who say, hey, this deal, uh, this three-page piece of paper, which holds all of our media rights for the next 14 years, this thing doesn't hold up anymore because this was signed under the belief that we'd be playing five football games a year against the biggest brand in college football, Notre Dame, and we're no longer doing that. And we're going to take this thing to the courts and we're going to find a way out of it. That's where I think things can get interesting because, look, I think, you know, I think if Clemson, Florida State, and Miami had sitting invites to the SEC right now, um, and they didn't have to pay a, a massive exit fee and sacrifice their media rights, they would go. I think they go tomorrow, and I don't think that's that's really revolutionary kind of speak here. I mean, there are two conferences right now that are in the halves equation of college football, and the rest right now are on the outside looking in, and it's kind of a mad dash to get a spot with one of those two conferences, and uh, you know, the, the less legal loopholes there are to making that happen the better if you're on the outside looking in. So you know our friend Jim Phillips very well, former Northwestern AD, old Notre Dame guy, who has now got the ACC commissioner job. And it's an interesting dynamic because he was part of that ill-fated alliance with the other two guys who were in it, George Klyavkov from the Pac-12, Kevin Warren from the Big Ten. The other two guys really were kind of new to college athletics. Jim is not. How do you think he is feeling this dynamic where maybe the biggest chip in his, you know, in his folder, Notre Dame, I think people think at some point is going to end up in the big 10. Would you agree with me at some point Notre Dame will be, or you're holding off on that? Uh, I mean, if it's a, if it's a yes or no thing, I say yes with an evergreen timeline there. I think eventually, yeah, logic's going to prevail. 
Okay, I would agree with that. So then you have these other schools, you know, as you mentioned, Clemson, Miami, Florida State, maybe there's interest for the Big Ten in North Carolina. I don't know uh, for sure. Um, how do you think Jim Phillips is going to respond to this or what, what, what kind of approach can he take to hope that people don't pick apart the grant of rights? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because I mean, I think you heard the same at the time. and It's kind of common knowledge how like Jim Phillips was really close to becoming the Big Ten commissioner, uh, the job that ended up going to Kevin Warren. And as we've seen over the last three years, the dynamics of both those conferences and those jobs are just so different right now. Uh, you know, it's like inheriting a Ferrari versus inheriting a, a, a beating up Honda Civic. Like it's just, uh, you can only play the hands you're dealt. And, um, you know, we, we've seen this at all levels of sport, right? Where, where the commissioner, in some ways it's a thankless job. Like you get too much credit and too much blame. Um, George Klaukov right now will forever officially be known as the Pac-12 commissioner who was there when USC and UCLA left and the conference as we know it began to fall apart, even though reality is his predecessor, Larry Scott, is much more to blame for, for, for what ended up happening this year. So I, I, I think, you know, the ACC, everyone I talked to, and still to this day from the day he got there, they've been really pumped up about Jim Phillips. Like the athletic directors love that they have one of their own there. They love they have a guy who speaks their language who is one of their own as far as coming up through the ranks in college athletics and understands how this goes and, and who's not going to uh, bat an eye uh, to, to what happens elsewhere. I remember talking to people um, in the league, I think it was the, the day or two days after the USC-UCLA News broke, and the ACC had, had a kind of an emergency athletic director's call, and the, the response I got out of that was, you know, this was pretty upbeat and positive. Like, you know, no one wants to brand themselves as number three, but – when you look at the best of the rest outside of the Big Ten and SEC right now, um, the ACC probably is the best argument to, to position itself to be that next best conference. And that's really all you can do right now if you're one of those bigger brands in that conference that legally cannot get out of that deal for the next 14 years. So I, I think he's doing as good of a job as, as humanly possible. Now, I will say this, he may regret leading the charge to not go ahead with the 12-team playoff that was proposed. Um, obviously, the, the other two alliance commissioners voted with him against it. But, um, you know, right now, I think that's one of the big unknowns that's hovering over the sport is what's the college football playoff going to look like beyond 2026 and who's ultimately going to decide what that looks like. Because, again, unlike in the past or <clears throat> unlike this past year where you need a unanimous decision and agreement to ratify the existing deal – this thing does not need um, unanimity. Uh, this thing is majority rules. And uh, even though they're just two men, Kevin Warren and, and Greg Zanke are the two most powerful voices in that room and two most powerful people in college football right now. And they've got the most money and they've got the biggest brands. And ultimately, I think whatever they say is going to happen is going to happen. And the rest of the conferences are just going to have to deal with it. So uh, I, I think one of the, the untalked about uh parts of this whole deal right now is what's the future of this sports championship tournament going to look like? Because the easiest path to relevance is a path to the national championship. We've seen it in college basketball where, you know, the Gonzagas of the world have become national powers um, through their work in the tournament. Um, we saw it in the ACC, right? Like the ACC was always known as a basketball conference until Florida State and Clemson started winning and competing for national championships on the football field annually. And um, if they lose access or potential access to that, 
that's when things start to get really hairy and you start to see the, the divide grow, not just in the dollars and cents figures, but in the competitive figures. And, and that's a pretty scary proposition, I think, for some of those upper echelon ACC schools right now. Yeah, it's a really precarious time in the sport in that regard. Um, it's interesting just in that we're coming off of this, this huge round of realignment and everything from the, from the speculation in it. And tomorrow night I'm flying to actually tonight I'm flying to the back to Dallas to go for big 12 media days is going to kick off. And then, as you said, ACC is kickoff event is next week. The SEC, you have the big 10 shortly thereafter, the PAC 12 later. Um, the season is basically right around the corner. It's a pretty exciting time in that regard. Definitely. I mean, look, Bruce, I mean, big 12 is kicking it off and I believe there'll be at least privately introducing their new commissioner, if not publicly, with Brett Yormark, who, uh, you know, that was a, a hire and a news headline that I think shook the sports world a little bit when it happened. And, and I think later that afternoon, after he was officially introduced, was when the, the Big Ten Pac-12 uh, realignment news broke, and we all kind of forgot about that, right? So, um, you know, when, when you talk about realignment and the haves and have-nots, um, don't underestimate the fact that one of the power five conferences has a brand new commissioner who has no experience in college sports whatsoever. Right? Like we thought Kevin Warren and, and George Klavkov were, were a little green and a little outside the box when they got those jobs. Um, right. Your marks from a completely different field uh, from, from the college sports sector, from a completely different part of the country. Um, and the early returns, as I'm sure you've heard as well, have been, uh, you know, the ADs who, were Googling who he was and asking me and you and other reporters who he was when news broke, they got hired. They were blown away by him in his introductory zoom with them. Um, and he's vowed to be very aggressive and much like Jim Phillips with the ACC, he's vowed, Brent Yormark has vowed with the big 12 to uh, ensure that their standing will be the third best for lack of a better term in the college football pecking order right now. So, uh, you know, and you know, the big 12, you know, at least from what we know right now, we'll have the most um, unique dynamics of any conference in that they've still got, Oklahoma and Texas there for the next couple of years. They're adding all those new schools next year. Um, and you're going to have a different size league, I think, for each of the next three years. And, and that just creates for a very interesting dynamic, as I'm sure some of those schools are, are talking to other conferences or hoping to get poached by other conferences and so forth. But um, it does seem like the season sneaks up on you every summer. Um, you know, it used to be, you know, all right, August is camp time. Here we go. Now it's like, Boy, 4th of July, here we go. Um, there, there, there's never a dull moment in this business. And, um, you know, it's exciting. It's exciting. I mean, me and you are getting a lot less sleep than we're used to. But I, I kind of live for this stuff. I like the drama. I like the, the, the backroom speculation. And I like seeing, you know, how things ultimately shake out. And obviously, we can't wait for, for the first uh, fall Saturday to get here as well. Yeah, Matt, I appreciate you jumping in today. This is Awesome uh, intel, especially on Notre Dame and, and kind of setting the scene for where everything's going. Um, this is, We should also just tag this. The, the story you guys did, you were a big part of it with Nicole Auerbach and Max Olson on uh, on Brett Yormark taking over in uh, going from the Brooklyn Nets and, you know, and, and from Rock Nation now to DFW and, and and I completely forgot. I, I didn't complete. I, I forgot about that. I've written so many realignment stories in the two weeks since then that, like, oh yeah, I wrote that. Like that had a shelf life of about three hours. But <laughs> thanks for plugging it for for our readers who, like myself, have probably forgotten about it already. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just that's that was that cycle. I mean, it's just nuts. Um, well, uh, hopefully, people will get a chance to check out the Wakey League story. I think they will find it interesting, even if they didn't know much about it before. I think their minds will be blown by it. 
Um, and then you can uh, check out all Matt's work. He's. Are you going to the ACC this year? Are you going to be I'm going, going to the ACC, yeah. I'll be there next week. Yeah. All right, so follow him as always. Matt, appreciate you joining us on The Audible today. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate it.